John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. You have accessed entry 1306.NU0774, certificate number 34596. The Tibetan Memory Trick. Okay, we'll do the announcer's test only because we want to see if you can remember it, okay? John, will you repeat after me? Uh, yes. One hen. One hen. One hen, two ducks. One hen, two ducks. One hen, two ducks, three squawking geese. One hen, two ducks, three squawking geese. One hen, two ducks, three squawking geese, four limerick oysters. One hen, four ducks. <laughs> one hen, two ducks. You should ducks, the numbers of the easy part. Three squawking hens, <laughs> four limerick oysters. Eh, not bad. C plus. One hen, one hen two, ducks, two ducks, three squawking, three squawking geese, four geese, limerick oysters, four. five corpulent porpoises. <laughs> one Henry Duck, <laughs> three quacking hens. What do you, uh, do you feel like you're, I mean, it's, it's obviously just a little short-term memory test, ec- some kind of echoic memory. Can you remember the thing you just said? Yes. You, you have a pretty good memory, I would say. Would you agree with that assessment? Yes. I, it's a thing that... Do you pride yourself on that? Well, I never did until it was pointed out to me, and then I started to. And then I started taking medication a few years ago that I noticed did have an impact. But it was, a, it was one of those where I, was also, I had also just turned 50, or was close to turning 50. Oh, then this is not a medication that made your memory better? No. You didn't start taking Adderall or I something? Didn't, no. <laughs> no, I just started to feel like there was just a, something a little fuzzy around the edges, which I'd never felt. You know, I always, I always, it was one of those things I didn't know uh, that you could lose until I started to lose it. Because my memory had always been really sharp, but I hadn't, I couldn't compare it to anything else. So it was only when I, when I started to, uh, to feel it it get a little furry just in certain places. Uh, and it's weird because you still feel the same. You're like, I haven't changed. Why are these situations coming up where I try to think of the word rehabilitate and I, it takes me a few seconds to think of the word rehabilitate. That didn't yeah. used to happen. No, it never used to happen. So, and I can't decide whether it's a, whether it just all, it's correlated with my, my increasingly bad eyesight or whether yeah, it's, it's, pr- it's probably eyesight. <laughs> I remember things by looking at them. <laughs> But you know, I'm just aging, and everything is atrophying, or or whether it, it is an effect of this med- of the medication I take. I don't like it. I don't like to 
not have a short-term memory. No, you start to see why um, senior citizens kind of do the thing where they pretend they're not forgetting stuff. You know, they'll call you by your dad's name. And then when you say, uh, Grandpa, uh, that's my dad. It's me. They'll be like, oh, of course it is. Yeah. I'm just funning with you. Well, and you also see why they get irritated. Sure. Why being old is really just super irritating all the time. And not just for others, the way young people think. <laughs> <laughs> but, it's you know, even, if anything, it's even more irritating for the elderly one. You also have a really good memory. And can, can, oh, I mean, thank can you. you imagine how frustrating it, it would be slash perhaps will be? When you and I are not just trying to remember the word rehabilitate, but trying to remember the difference between 1987 and 1997. Or the difference between the toilet and the refrigerator at some point. <laughs> I mean, podcast listeners love it when the hosts can't remember the name of something because they right. all get to feel, you get to feel smart at home for yeah, when, sometimes up to 20 seconds if, if you and I can't remember um, Point Roberts. <laughs> we, you know, we had fun with that though. A lot of our fans. Usually we cut usually we cut right. that stuff out, so it seems like our memories are razor sharp. But no, it's not future tense for me at all. It's absolutely happening right now to me. You can feel it. Well, I remember when... And it, I, when, I noticed it in my late 30s, even. When when you were headed off to the GOAT tournament, um, you sort of characteristically expressed a lot of doubt and concern about how, how you were going to do... You said to me at one point, I just want to win one round so I'm not embarrassed. Yeah, that and was I, and that, that was absolutely true. And when I won the first round, I really did feel like, oh, good. It shows that I yeah. am of this caliber, and now I, I felt like a lot of pressure was Yeah, that. I did, too. I shook shook hands with everybody all around us because I was like, he did it. He can go home, you know, head held high. <laughs> you're shaking hands. I was like, you're, you're being congratulated. Congratulations. Congratulations, everyone. <laughs> but, uh, but one of the things you said was that you felt like your memory wasn't what it was, and part of competing against James uh, Holtzauer was that he was 10 years younger than you and had access to all that, all those soft brain cells. Both those guys were younger than me. And it really does feel like a, it is a flowers for Algernon scenario where every day you just feel like you're, you've, you've lost it a little bit. Like, yeah, that's a fact you would have known. And, and uh, yeah, like you, I didn't notice it while I had it. Nobody right. notices that they have sharp eyesight. Right. Um, you just always assumed that if you had learned something, you could discuss it you would know it forever and it would always be right there at the like your fingertips like guaranteed by the fdic (laughs) and it's just not true anymore at a certain age and i'm I'm sure i'm not that different from i bet i'm not that different from most people and that most people's memories for things they're interested in works perfectly for the first few decades of their life if you're if you're if there's something you have a hard time remembering you're probably just not that into it, honestly. Well, no, I, I don't think I have some magical fibers in my brain that give me a better associative memory. This is the problem with talking uh, to you, is that you don't think that other people are not also... I don't think that other people as, are not also just... <laughs> just a, for also, neither must. Uh, no, you, you feel like you are normal. And that's a, that's a thing that I am constantly trying to disabuse you of the idea that you are normal. I'm probably at some end of a bell curve, but I think less so than you would think. You're but like, I, this guy knows all the world capitals. And it really is like, if you had some kind of moment as a child where you were really interested in world capitals, you also would know them. But I, I talk to a lot of people who claim that they never had a short-term memory that huh. they that if you say like, like the guy from memento not that but just like what did you do today oh i don't i don't remember what do you mean you don't remember like you went to school you did stuff oh i guess yeah i mean i saw <laughs> to me talking to my kids i saw a friend you know but they don't have that um that ability that you and i both had which was that we could retrace our steps that day and recount 
all the conversations we had or all the things that we saw, places we went. I think, honestly, you're much better at that than me. And it's part of why you're a really good storyteller. And it's also something, it's also part of the reason why I don't see myself as that much of an outlier, because I see myself doing kind of flaky memory things like that all the time. Oh. You know, like I'll, I'll misremember how long it's been since I, what did we do two summers ago? Wait, was that the year we went to Yellowstone? No, you know, I, or, or, you know, just knowing where my keys are. Like I have so many kind of memory flaps during the day that I think, you know, I, I might have a knack in one area, but I don't think there's anything magical about my memory. You, you, Your autobiographical memory is very good though. You did that show with me that I used to do that weekly show at the rendezvous. Uh, although we did a special episode with you, right? At it was the, like a Christmas app or something. We did a show of, of, at the rendezvous one time where I, um, I walked down to the venue, which took 15 minutes. And when I got there, I told a 30 minute long story about my 15 minute walk. <laughs> And it was because I, you know, because I was remember, I, I could see and remember things that had happened on the walk where, you know, I saw three or four things in the same span of time. And to retell each one of those three and each things. One, each, each one reminded you of three other things that happened in Bulgaria. <laughs> so it's a, it's a fractal, endlessly complex. So that, that memory I still have and I still am, uh, and I, and I treasure it. And it is frustrating to me when I, that's when honestly I, more useful, autobiographical memory, than than factual memory. Well, like you I don't can't, know. I never, you can't win Jeopardy on what did you do today. Yeah, but you can Google the answers to to every. You can't Google what did you do today. I suppose you, you can you can Google uh, where's uh, Dagestan. So, but my daughter does this to me a lot. She's just like, I don't remember. And I'm like, it happened <laughs> six hours ago. What do you mean you don't remember? And she's like, I don't remember. I don't remember. And what can you say to someone who says they don't remember? You can't. You can't tell them that they do if they don't. <laughs> you can't force them to. You can't gaslight them into remembering. Yeah, I mean, just we, just a sec, just a second ago, we were upstairs, and I said, "What is what when you when you add or subtract two fractions? What do you try to find? What is the number on the bottom? What's it called?" And she was like, "What? What do you mean?" She acted like she had never heard the word fraction or denominator, something yeah. you you two had spent much of yesterday working on. Yeah, and I was like, "That what are you what are you trying to accomplish when you when you do an equation with two fractions?" She was like. I have no idea. What but then she started about. to tell the story, and she's like, "Oh, you just have to make the numbers the same by finding the lowest common denominator." <laughs> and I was like, "What?" Yeah, I, that... <laughs> but you know, she does. She gaslights me all the time, and I was like, "So you, so you know, lowest common denominator—the thing I was just trying to get you to say." See, just like us on this podcast, she can find the lowest common denominator without even trying. It's uh, it's the whole it's our whole brand, right? There is a thing where people have a very keen. Uh, autobiographical memory like that. It's it like is, that is a thing. The opposite of amnesia, hyper, hyperthymnesia, I think. It's the thing that Marilu Henner from Taxi has, oh. where you just ask her what she did on May 20th, um, 1978, and she'll tell you she had a pastrami sandwich for lunch, but she had ordered corned beef and they gave her the wrong one. Oh, I can't, I can't do that. Although I love Mary Lou Henner from Taxi. <laughs> How did I know? <laughs> She's really... Is there any that, late 70s sitcom where you don't have some like crush that you still think about four times fact, a day? In it wasn't, fact, it wasn't that long ago that I Googled Mary Lou Henner just because... Her performance in Johnny Dangerously affected me so profoundly for the rest of my life. And then I realized she's still a star and she's some kind of uh, exercise guru or dietitian or she sells juggling equipment or something. She's like an yeah, internet somebody. Probably all of those. Yeah. Uh, yeah. There's maybe just a few hundred people that can do this, but she's the one who went on The Tonight Show, you know, and talked about it. And so for people who had that gift, they were like, oh, that's a thing. I thought I was just weird. She was like... And there's a, I have a friend whose brother can do this. Wow, what, really? And Yeah, and you, it really is the same kind of thing where you'll just mention a date and he'll talk about which classes he had. And it's clear that he's not making a, 
he's not reading a file back because he has to do some work. He'll be like, well, that was my junior year of college and that was spring semester, which means that I'd already quit. I'd already switched majors and I wasn't taking that jazz class anymore. So he'll have to do that, but he can keep drilling down and it'll end with lunch. Wow. And it just makes you wonder what that's got to be some physiological difference. Whoa. I uh, what a what an incredible journey that would be or how I would love to have that ability cuz I can do that back to a certain point, but I can't keep going all the way back to lunch. His friend Eric was uh, I mean his brother Eric was making a um a documentary about him and he wanted me to like show up and play trivia against his brother. Uh, so, uh, it's, it's a guy named, it's Eric Williams. Uh, he's a friend of mine, a screenwriter, and he made a little documentary called Unforgettable about his brother. And it's quite good. I think you can probably, there may be a way to watch it online in your era, Futurelings. Um, but so for a part of the documentary is, is me and Brad playing trivia and he chooses some round that's like, what was the billboard number one hit on these dates? It's some very chronologically themed music trivia. And, uh, Brad just wipes the floor with me. Wow. But so there are there there are different things going on in the brain with memory, but uh, but memory is fun for us, you know, because it's all we have really. It's where we it's where we all live, and it, it's got a deep emotional content. It's all bound up with nostalgia and people we don't see anymore. It's fun to remember things, but it's also bound up with trauma. It's not fun to remember all the things. Um, so there are things we don't like to think about. It's very central to our experience as people. And it's, and like anything that's central, we play with it. Do you have the ability or does, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to think <clears throat> in the life of Ken Jennings where there could possibly be any trauma greater than just being super bored by your dad talking to waitresses about <laughs> model trains. <laughs> but are there thoughts that, it, that you find intrusive that you have to chase out? Do you find yourself sometimes churning on bad memories or thoughts. Yes. And it's usually, um, it's usually something dumb. It, it's, 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 uh, an anecdote. It's something awkward. I said to a girl, but like in 1992 <laughs> or, or somebody like kicked sand in your face at the beach and yeah, said, yeah, I mean, maybe not. Yeah. But something related to that childhood insecurities, for example, um, a time I felt left out on the playground in first grade, uh, and those memories will come up. You'll find that they just surface and start running around in your head. And you're like, what am I, how did I get here? I find that I'm pretty good at not thinking about them, which is of course what any therapist would tell you to do. Just cram it down right. and not, not deal with it. And I, I find that I can do that, um, which probably ties in with everything you already think about me and repression. <laughs> do you, are you able, or will you, will you just chase your own tail forever on a bad memory? No, but I, I definitely <clears throat> will sit long past the point that it's, uh, it's sapping me of strength and replay and refight. Oh yeah. Refi you know, refi I forgot refighting arguments. Yeah. But like churn, churn yeah. on something bad until, until I have to say like, wait a minute, what are you doing? Like you have brought yourself to a place where your fists are clenched, your shoulders are hunched, and you're thinking about something that happened in the 80s. Like, get back. Come as, back. As recently as yesterday, I was trying to finish this book I was reading. I was doing some research for something I'm writing, and I was trying, I, and I had half this book done, and I'm sitting in the sun, and I've got to finish this book. And for some reason, I get on my phone and I start going back through my own Twitter. <laughs> 
I don't even know why I'm admitting. What an awful smog I don't know why, that must be. I don't know why I'm admitting this most. No, they're they're all they're all amazing. Uh, right, top shelf. Uh, but it, but I just like kept scrolling back, and part of my brain is like, why you're like back three weeks now, cracking yourself up with your old tweets. You've got to finish this book. What are you doing? But like it went on for like 15 more minutes. As part of my brain is like, this is. These are some good tweets. And the other part of my brain is like, this is the most masturbatory thing. Read your book. <laughs> These are it's, some good I tweets. I mean, it's the second most masturbatory thing <laughs> sure, sure, that sure. I could have been doing. Uh, and I was really, it was really kind of disturbing to see how your brain can just get away from you. And I'm sure, yeah. you know, and, and anybody who's ever dealt with any compulsion or addiction says, no, that's not weird, Ken. Like, of course our brains can do that. But My brain gets away from me all the time. And it's not always related to memory, but it, but, but memory certainly is one of the, one of the, um, I think of it almost geographically, right? It's one of the locations yeah. that I can go get lost in that in the labyrinth of um, of memories, good and bad. My memory very much is a geography too. I find it's very spatial. Things tend to be organized, even factual things tend to be organized by place. Uh, not in the sense that I can wander through it like uh, Sherlock Holmes on the BBC, right? But just in the sense that, um, like, my dreams will often take place in imaginary topographies that repeat. Like some some part of Seattle that doesn't exist, but where I I I've gone to multiple times huh. in in dreams in dreams yeah oh but the same in memory you know if I if I hear something about you know if I read a news article about what's something someplace something Ecuador Ecuador has got a lot of Ecuador. COVID right now like it, it'll immediately like like I, I do like some kind of like I'm I, I'm on some 70s educational big blue marble type TV show where uh-huh. like my brain zooms on Ecuador. <laughs> And suddenly I'm thinking about the equator and the Incas and Mount Chimborazo and uh, like a Tintin. And I, you right. know, I, and I can't even get away from it. It's just, it's just how there's, there's a little planet earth in my head and, and that's fun. I enjoy factual memory. It's fun to, to know things. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Me too. Although a lot of that takes the form of actually like verbal storytelling in my head. Yeah. For you, it's not a place for you. It's very much a narrative, right? For me, my memory is kind of like a Mayan calendar, right? It's a, it's a, like a flat <laughs> it circle. It ended in 2012. <laughs> and it has a lot of dragons on it and <laughs> hieroglyphs. Uh, but no, if I'm, if I'm in a memory, it's, I am, I'm narrating it or, or it's being narrated. You know, I, the story is being told as as I'm also seeing. So when you're telling pictures. a story, it's almost like you're just telling a story you're hearing. I'm like here. It, it's, I'm here. You're just a you're, you're just a vessel for the Mayan energy you're for uh, for Ramtha. <laughs> yeah, Ramtha's telling us a story. Um, speaking of my dad telling boring stories to waitresses, like one of my earliest m- memories regarding kind of the fun of memory is my dad reciting that little nonsense doggerel verse that we were doing one, one hand, hand two ducks, ducks three squawking, three squawking geese, geese. It, the joke is it gets longer and more elaborate so you think you're halfway through and you were not halfway through this, this this is something that your dad did as a I'm, I'm a little kid and this is something that i grew up with him him doing in in uh, mcdonald's booths is it a car is, trips is it a parlor trick is it a thing is kind, it, kind like... of so here's the full thing four limerick oysters Five corpulent porpoises, six pairs of Don Alverso's tweezers. I think my dad used to say Revlon tweezers. As we'll see, there are many variants of this uh, text. 7,000 Macedonians in full battle array. Wait, we got what, 7,000 already? Well, it, start, it starts with seven. Oh, we, we didn't oh. just, it doesn't, it does not go to 7,001. It goes to eight. Eight brass monkeys from the ancient sacred crypts of Egypt. Nine apathetic, sympathetic, diabetic old men on roller skates with a marked propensity towards procrastination and sloth. 
ten lyrical, spherical, diabolical denizens of the deep who holst all around the corner of the quo, the quay, the quivy, all at the same time. So it's a tongue twister in addition to it's, being... Yes, it, there's a lot going on there. It, it could function as a tongue twister, it could function as a diction test, and it has been all these things. But we always thought of it as a memory test, because, you know, Dad could just rattle this thing off. Right. Eeny, meeny, decimini, ooh, It's exactly. And, and, and I thought of it as one of these... He, it must have come from his Boy Scout campery youth, where, where this kind of call and response thing is common. Um, but when my brother, my younger brother, my, my brother Nathan's two years younger than me, and he uh, has been listening to Omnibus oh. recently. Hey, well, welcome, Nathan. What's up, Nathan? Thanks for listening to 1,000 Hours of the McElroys, so you could <laughs> so you could get to this other slightly less funny podcast. Uh, he, so he would, are we going to start teasing him like we tease your kids? What what are what are some of Nathan's foibles that what we are, can start? What to... are some of his flaws that we can start to dissect? Wow! <laughs> hey Nathan, ever win a game show? Because you know who loves that younger siblings. Yeah, younger siblings. They are into that. I guess we made fun of your um of your sister telling us all about chakras. Yeah, you got to be careful making fun of my sister though, because she'll she'll, she'll cut you. <laughs> she's she'll come out like Miss Piggy. <laughs> wow! <laughs> But luckily, she does not listen to Omnibus, so we're safe for now, right? Nathan requested this uh, this um, text, which has been variously called the announcer's test and the Tibetan memory trick, as an idea for a, for an Omnibus, and I thought that was great. And so I asked my dad last weekend, hey, um, that, that kind of mid-century thing that you always used to do with us, where in your childhood did that come from? And he said, oh, not at all. I think I must have seen it in, like, in Games Magazine in the 80s. <laughs> so it was really just some late 70s kind of... Um, nerd puzzle culture thing that he saw maybe in some Martin Gardner column in Scientific American or games, or maybe when the New York, New York magazine used to do that contest and they'd have people suggest different puns or whatever. Like it was for him, it was very much of that era. And I always assumed it was, it was a, a baby boomer campfire. Right. Right. That's what it sounds like. Yes. And in fact, it was much later to him, but so I, so I became interested and started trying to trace this back and it's clear that it starts out with the other memory games that used to happen. Futurelings should know. If they're living in a time without electricity, they already know this. But we have no hobbies or pastimes anymore because we invented electronics. Right. And now we don't have to see or do things together. No, we just sit and look at things going bleep bloop. But there was um, centuries when that didn't exist. And so when people got together at, uh, in one another's homes and had a little wassail or whatever, they would immediately play a series of just excruciatingly boring... No, they're not. I mean, they would play parlor games. Parlor games. And they're actually not too different than... I mean, if you've ever gone to somebody's house and played a party game where you tried to get your partner to say a word or phrase, there are now a hundred of these things and, and many different variations of them. Like in Taboo, the variation is... You can't use certain words. But, you know, there's there's 100 games that are basically $25,000 pyramid or password, right? Yeah. And this all started in the, you know... This goes back to 18th century Britain, where people would write the names of of biblical characters or whatever on slips of paper and put them in a hat, and you would draw one and have to get your partner to say Goliath or uh, Sir Walter Raleigh or whatever. So these have to at least be either post-beginning of the Industrial Revolution or— Because people have time to do it? Yeah, post-leisure class, right? There has to be a group of people who are A, bored, and B— well, so and being bored isn't a thing that's an option for most people in ancient times. No, you're either you're either planting or you're weary. <laughs> right, planting. Ba- back or then, there were two moods. <laughs> like, how you doing, Bob? And you would either say, "I'm planting" or "I'm weary." <laughs> so, right, you have to have you have to have time and mental energy and and also 
uh, even the the sort of um, the notion that this kind of whimsy. Yeah, could exactly. Be productive. You you can't have a religious tradition that would preclude you. Right. Like all, if all Sunday you have to sit in silence and listen to the clock tick and look at the Bible, then you cannot play the minister's cat is a whimsical cat or or whatever. But I mean, I think you're right. Like the examples I'm thinking of are uh, Victorian. Um, yeah. Because of the the men in my family all knew Shakespeare to a certain extent. They they could they sit and, him. and recite it. I see. Because um, at schools, that was taught. Because of schools. And, you know, and Boris Johnson with his his talk show uh, parlor trick where he sat and recited the Oristia from memory in Greek or Wait, whatever that was. You have, you've never seen that? No, but he's, how sad that Oxford and Cambridge are still broken. Yeah, he's he's on some talk show and he's being, you know, all, you know, loose and... and, uh, and <laughs> Uh, tousled and the and the and it's a british talk show so they're you know they're much more uh they're smarter than us yeah and they're and and they they because they spent no money on their set it's just like some some chairs and a blue background and the the host the presenter between two aspidistra that beloved british feature the 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 presenter says you know asks him some question about his education and he starts to speak in greek and then keeps going. And Are they afraid he's having an episode? Somebody, no, no, no. They put a he, wallet under his tongue? He's doing it with all this uh, sort of, uh, uh, this he, you know, public school boy charm. He was charm. in Footlights or something. Yeah, and she, and the presenter, she is just falling over herself with delight. And you can see the audiences, too, because he's, you know, he's he gives the impression of being fluent. But he, he memorized four straight minutes in ancient Greek. And I've read... Commentators say that his Greek is bad, of course. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, but a pretty pretty cool little trick. Do, are there, you, do you have poems? I was going to ask, are there texts? Because I assume if you at a young enough age, like I can still remember what we were made to do that with, which is, I don't know, it was the night before Christmas in elementary school, right. and then uh, uh, Romeo and Juliet soliloquy, and uh, but my dad was, was definitely a guy who would memorize things for fun. If you want to hear whole. Uh, sketches by Monty Python or the two Ronnies. He has them. I mean, I have some Monty Python. I can do some Robert Frost. I can yeah, do Yeah, I can do some, Stopping by Woods. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, a couple of, yeah, little poems and little bits and stuff that stuck. So in a time when there was nothing to play with besides what was in your head, um, I mean, cribbage, I guess you can you can drill holes in a board. But even without that, Backgammon. You, you can all sit around and take turns saying, my love is an M. Her name is Mindy. She is mellifluous and magical. Her favorite foods are manicotti and meatballs. Uh, she would like to be a milliner. You know, this kind yeah, of thing where yeah, you're yeah. just... Tra- and then the next person has to do N and so forth. And there was a whole family of games like this. And then somebody can't do it and there's much merriment and more wassail. And, right. Because, you know, you got to O and O is very hard. Um, these kind of things where they get harder in every... And a lot of them are cumulative, right? You have to say, I went to the store and I bought, and the next person has to add a second thing. And, right. And you still do these things in... Road trips. This is Road the, trips, yeah. church youth groups, uh, drama club warm-up exercises. Uh, they still have a place in our culture, where in a place where people are, are forced to put their phones in their locker, probably, or don't have signal. I think the route goes back further. You know, if we say this, this kind of stuff began... Early 19th century, when leisure time and middle class begins, the predecessor is probably cumulative songs, which go back at least to the 18th century. Um, the most f- cumulative song is one that adds a new thing to the verse 
each time. And right. so the verse gets longer. I don't know. Do you, can you think of songs in this vein? Or? Yeah. Uh, what are, there are so many of them. Um, we don't sing them anymore, though. Like, and a lot of them are children's songs, like, uh, you know, Old McDonald's. I don't know why. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The, the old lady swallowed the fly. Yeah, right. She swallowed the something to catch the something. She swallowed the. And uh, the, do you know the hole in the bottom of the sea? First, there's just a hole, and then there's a, a boat in the hole, and oh, then there's, sure. a, there's a goat in the hole on the... It's goat on the boat in the hole. That's an electric, that's an electric company, I think. I've, 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 I remember it. The only one we really sing today is um, 12 Days of Christmas, and that goes back to 1780. Because today we've associated it with children's songs, because they are fun. I'm sure there's three Decemberist songs like this. <laughs> they All might... about killing the old lady's goat. <laughs> they Might Be Giants has one on one of their children's albums, The House at the Top of the Tree. Is that right? The house at the top of my tree, which I guess is kind of a hole at the bottom of the sea riff. My dad had one he used to do when I was a kid. Because again, this is a guy who memorizes two Ronnie's routines. Oh, there's a hole in the bucket, dear Liza. Does that get longer and longer? Oh, yeah. And what sh- with what shall I f- fix it? Do? And how shall I chop it? But the verses don't get longer. That's more of a um, daddy's going hunting kind of a thing where it's just a different prop each time. Oh, I see. So, it, it, yeah, it, it it's... Explicative, but it doesn't, it doesn't, it's not cumulative. Right, exactly. Because the thing about Old McDonald has a farm is you have to remember Baba here and then an oink oink there. Right. Um, and it, it, so in the, tw- in the late 20th century, it became the province of children's and novelty songs. There's one that I don't think I've ever heard anywhere before or since, but my dad would play anytime there was an acoustic guitar near him, which is an old Rolf Harris song. Rolf Harris, um, an Australian singer who briefly was famous in this hemisphere for timey kangaroo down but also i think maybe turned out to be a a rapist or something so he's been he's been canceled sure like like every australian man of his era it was later discovered he had he had the worst kind of porn on his computer or something well isn't uh isn't all australian culture just uh uh for children (laughs) just because they say uh, (laughs) it's a googity boogity isn't it all just fun just because they add extra syllables to words i mean the fact that they're rapists is bad but yeah but they're all descendants of rapists so what are you gonna Uh, do yeah uh but this rolf harris song is is about the ladies of the harem of the court of king caractacus or something like that do do you know this song Mm -hmm. and it's it's a parade but every time it's going to be now it's going to be the boys who put the powder on the noses of the faces of the ladies of the harem of the and then it's going to be the scintillating, the something kind of witches who put the scintillating stitches in the britches of the boys who put the powder on the noses of the faces of the ladies of the. See, this is my Orstaya. Yeah, as I can do as I can do these novelty <laughs> songs. My dad used to play on the guitar. Um, the one your, your childhood sounds extraordinary. I thought you were going to say excruciating. Well, no, because because I'm picturing you, you know, with your like Korean uh, baseball league hat on, <laughs> sitting in front of the TV watching Korean baseball while your dad is in the background. I tweeted yesterday about Korean baseball. You probably saw, and I yeah. got within two hours, I had an email from ESPN asking me to get up today at 5 a.m. and, and do Korean baseball commentary. And did you? No. <laughs> Why not? 5 a.m.? <laughs> I emailed the guy and said, I had about one sentence of... Uh, of material about the OB bears and the Hete tigers of the eighties. And it was all in that tweet. So I'm, I'm out. They're desperate for any, yeah, right. any American who can speak to Korean baseball. Uh, but uh, today we, well, I mean, I think growing up with, in a family like that, like I can't solve the nature versus nurture puzzle of me because obviously I have the genes of these odd people, right? But also I, I, I model their behaviors for, right. for 10 to 20 years. You have never once Picked up. There are guitars all around me, and you have never once picked one up and played any kind of Australian novelty song. Uh, what am I doing? So you obviously 
fell a little far, far from the tree. Yeah, my parents are very disappointed. <laughs> he does all right on that game show, but oh. he doesn't know the chords to The Streak by Ray Stevens. For the record, we hasten to add and remind you anytime we get the opportunity, although this is a podcast about the end of the world, we do not believe the end of the world is happening now. A, a, a pandemic with a paltry 0.8% fatality rate or whatever it is, is certainly a great tragedy, but not a civilization ending one, luckily. No, we started making this program in anticipation of a giant meteor strike. A wave of blood. It's not yeah. clear where it originates, but it would be it would be 30 feet tall. Yeah, Cthulhu rising up out of the, yeah, the uh, Gulf of Mexico. The Elder Gods, um, some kind of uh, mutated, not virus, but like mutated... Um, what walrus the size of a skyscraper? Yeah, that's the uh, that's the apocalypse that we uh, that we're referring to when we talk about uh, the justification for the omnibus project. Because we were raised on Japanese monster movies right. and comic books. Uh, the the COVID nineteen coronavirus uh, plague is a bummer and uh, definitely a deal changer for the year 2020-21. Something to grieve, whether you've lost someone or just something, because we all have. But fortunately for us, not the end times. And we want to express to you, Ken and I, our appreciation for you, the futurelings of the world who continue to listen to our program and enjoy it. We hope that we bring you some lighthearted distraction and a lot of talk about whatever it is that we talk about on this show cheese and it's mostly cheese cheese it's like 80 percent dancing girls it's 80 percent cheese yeah we what? do talk about cheese and mail trucks and mail trucks made out of cheese probably at some mm. kind of wisconsin mm. dairy festival mm. uh thank you for those of you who support the show uh at patreon.com slash omnibus project um it is a great relief to us and uh and and life-affirming and uh, for the record, although we don't think the pandemic is the thing that ends civilization, we think it might be the murder hornets. Murder hornets are a bummer. Uh, they behead bees, which is a bummer. And it's only a matter of time before they learn they to behead humans. Figure out how to behead us. Like, yeah. really, they're working their way up. And yeah. once they get to us, it's over. So it's probably the murder hornets. But this just but be, be reassured, it is not the pandemic. In our lifetime, this is not even the first murder bee to threaten to... Ruin all of civilization. You're talking about the Africanized killer bees? Yeah, yeah, right. They were sweeping up from South America. There is no new news cycle under the sun. I know. Every unprecedented seeming disaster is an extremely precedented disaster. Well, now, now that they're closing down all the meat processing plants, now it's famine again. Now we're back to famine. It's not famine. We'll oh. just have to eat vegetables. Does that seem worse? My God. It's worse than famine. Animal do you think I am? Anyway, we appreciate your support of Omnibus Project. We've noticed definitely that in the um, in this time when fewer people are commuting, it turns out that commuting is when people a lot of people listen to podcasts. So we're grateful that you are listening to the Omnibus Project. And if it is within your uh, within your means to support the show at patreon.com slash omnibus project, uh, we're also grateful for that support. We are delighted that in a time of a lot of economic insecurity that it uh, we have not, although listenership has dipped with commuters, that um, 
It's, pa- tipped, pa- it's tipped across all podcasts. Yes. And, but Patreon support has not. Like, yeah, that's is, wonderful. Isn't that great? Yeah, that's that, lovely. That uh, the people are loyal. Thank you. And uh, when civilization returns to normal, Ish. to whichever version of normal it is that it returns to, let me encourage you, if if you have to go back to work, by all means, go back. And if you want to go back to work, by all means, go back. But if you are able to stay home and work and your boss is telling you to come back to work, resist. Tell him to go uh, suck an egg. Say, suck an egg. But you do have to simulate podcast commute listening. Right. By um, puttering around your house for 20 minutes or however long your commute was, making car noises with your mouth and listening to Omnibus. Get one of those beds that looks like a race car and spend spend a half an hour uh, in the morning and a half an hour at night going while listening to the Omnibus Project. The only cumulative song we really sing today is 12 Days of Christmas. And if you'll recall, the 12 Days of Christmas, like the uh, uh, the uh, one hen, two ducks, three squawking geese thing we just did, begins with poultry, right? Right. It's a partridge, and then it's right. turtle doves, and then a French hen. So my supposition is that our, our modern tongue twister about the corpulent porpoises starts with some kind of folk song. And the 12 Days of Christmas probably came from the French sometime in the 18th century. So it's it's probably older than America, the the idea, not the um not the landmass. Is this is it is it something that's uh that's I mean, one of the hardest things must be as a duck farmer. <laughs> well, there's there's it's, so many things. You're for one thing, you're always feeling down. Right. Oh. No, you're not. You're not into oh, that. Ow, what, oh, ow! What would you say? Where's my that? bell? Where's that air horn? Somebody sent us an air horn. Auga. Is it still uh, over there somewhere? Somewhere, yeah. I, I can't plug it. You got to plug it in. You got to warm it up. You got to hand crank it. Um, what is the hard part of being a duck farmer? Well, you got to count all the ducks. <laughs> you know, if you've got 250 ducks, every time they go by. So you're saying this would have spoken to people back then because it revolves around counting. Uh, poultry. That it's always it's it's. I mean, wouldn't they want to leave that at the office? Why would they make songs about it? I, I just feel like it start. It probably started as a work song, like oh, one of the I finest see. work songs. <laughs> down, 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 where you sit, where you sit, and the ducks are going by, and you're just like seventy-two ducks on the wall, forty-four geese. But but we don't do that today. We don't make up songs about database report generator software. Oh, you don't. Some of us do, maybe. So you think it actually started in the barnyard? Little, you know. The family singing to each other the numbers of hens and ducks they see. Don't all these things uh, start as, as as practical songs? The association with Christmas made me think it was maybe uh, people counting. Maybe it was kind of a harvest. It was a a, 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 a counting of abundance. You know, like here's yeah, okay. here's what we've got salted away in the smokehouse. We've got this many French hens, this many turtle doves. I don't know. But the point is it gets very silly very quickly. It turns into a Monty Python sketch almost immediately. I mean, number four is oysters. Right. Um, and that's plausibly something you could smoke away for winter. Also hard to count. <laughs> hard to I mean, you get a, you get a, a, bas, a bastic of oysters. You order them by the half dozen. You know how many you're getting. <laughs> uh, but then it very quickly turns into tweezers and whatnot. Yeah. And it's no longer pre-industrial revolution. Uh, I was able to find, looking at old... American books in uh, the American post-Civil War era is the earliest I could find people actually printing books, telling children fun ideas of things to do. Children and families 
and you know, young ladies of, of, uh, of good upbringing, here are some fun things. Here are some crafts you could make. Here are some things you could chant. Uh, here are some games, some rowdy games you could play uh, outdoors, of course. Um, and they all have names like the American Home Book of Indoor Games, Amusements, and Occupations, or Popular Pastimes for Field and Fireside, or Amusements for Young and Old. So apparently fun has gotten invented in America right after the Civil War. <laughs> but isn't there an aspect to these where there's at least the suggestion that this is good for you? Like, w- whenever you do the crossword or the Sudoku or the the Ken Ken or whatever, there's always some voice in your head that's saying, this is good for my memory, this is good for my constitution. Sudoku isn't just a mindless diversion, it's actually keeping me sharp, and it's it's uh, pushing Alzheimer's down into the shadows. Don't you think that would have been especially true in the 19th century when, you know, parents are going to buy this book only if they think it's improving right. for their children so in some way? is there evidence that these songs keep your, or improve your memory, or... Or um, <clears throat> teach you stratagems? I'm a little bit skeptical. I'm looking at the table of contents of one of these books, and it really is exactly what you say. As the twig is inclined, so grows the tree. This is the preface of one of these books. Uh-huh. Crooked and gnarled or upright and strong with its boughs reaching heavenward. So in other words, if you don't buy this book for your kids, this is nature's <laughs> law and the same law applies equally to the human race. We forget how soon the children around us will become men and women and that as we train them, our country and future generations will reap the harvest. So in other words, if you teach your little girls how to make chains of dandelion stems and you teach them how to chant the Swiss peasant and Uncle John and how to play twirl the trencher uh, after luncheon, then you're going to, you were going to get a more upright new generation. And there's a whole section of games of memory in here. And I think you're right. Like this is, this is one that's the most like the schoolroom of the time. I'm going to say something and you're going to repeat it. Right. And there's a version in here, which is very similar. And this is the 1870s, very similar to the 20th century one hand, two ducks, Text. It starts out with a good fat hen. Then there's two good, two ducks, and so it's always poultry. I'll pull through all the way down. Three squalling wild geese, two ducks, and one good fat hen. Four plump partridges. So probably this would start with a memory of twelve days of Christmas. Then you get to five hundred limerick oysters. There's 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 more than the usual number. Right. And I would have thought that this is maybe it's too. When I heard limerick oysters as a kid, I associated it with English nonsense verse. You know, you've got. Edward Lear's limericks and Lewis Carroll's uh, oysters from Walrus and the Carpenter. But I think it might actually be referring to limerick in the West of Ireland, that there, oh. that there are oyster beds oh, out oh, there. Oh, right. Well, that would make sense. You're going to go to your seafood store and you're going to get <laughs> limerick oysters. Limerick oysters. Um, then there's six pairs of Don Alfonso's tweezers. So tweezers were a household item in the 1870s? I mean, maybe that's part of the Industrial Revolution, one of the, one of the, uh, one of the cool things that everybody could afford. You can now get a piece of, piece and, of tweezers. And not just the tweezers, but Italian hairdressers appear to exist, or the idea of a— of Don a, Alfonso. Don Alfonso, some kind of continental beautician, appears to exist, uh, which is funny. Um, 700 Macedonian horsemen drawn up in line of battle. That's very similar. Eight is quite different. Eight cages of Heliogabalus sparrow kites. Say again? Heliogabalus, uh, an eccentric and depraved Roman emperor, which I think will, I'm sure he'll be his own omnibus entry before long. Uh-huh. Nine is very close. Nine sympath- and here we get some of the same rhyming. Nine sympathetic, epithetic, didactic propositions. So it's not apathetic, sympathetic, diabetic, but it's sympathetic, epithetic, didactic. Hmm. And, uh, and I also found a later version where Heliogabalus has become he-hi-ho-bibulus. So it's clear that what's happening is a game of telephone over the centuries where... He hi ho gibbly gib 
Heliogabalus, a word that exists, has been turned in the in the mouth and ears of, of generations of children into he hi ho bibulus. So is this um, a neat Billy Boaten don't bebop in it, Nary? Is is there some why not you? Is there some song from uh, from prehistory where that uh, where those were all real words? Heliogabalus is a real word. Why right. don't you? Do you think it's a merzy dotes and dozy dotes scenario? Maybe, maybe. I don't know. Where does that why don't you swim all over the dam? That is a novelty song, right? So, but where these things that come only through folklore and campfires are very hard to trace because boop, no boop. one ever published Wadat and Chew, I assume. Boop, boop, didn't Adam Wadam Chew? Oh, but you're right. It's, it, boop, boop, it does seem to come from that. Chew. At some point, you have to imagine some scoutmaster or fun dad Ugh. somewhere coming up with these things. Yuck. And enough kids do it that the neighborhood kids start doing it. And then it gets around at school. And then it starts to infect a nearby school. It's almost like a virus. You know, the the a lot of those cu- campfire or Cub Scout ones kind of sound like um, like a fifties dad trying to sound Native American. Yes, and that there is a strain of that. Do you remember? I don't know how well you know your mid century musicals, but there's a, a thing in the Music Man set around 1910 where the women of the town get up and 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 do a series of. Um, they're the the young women are the Watan Yi girls, and they're all dressed in kind of these faux Indian headdresses, um, you know, feathers, pretty offensive today. And they all get up and do war dances and chant in kind of, uh, I'm sure what's gibberish, right? not an actual native indigenous language. Um, but yeah, that was part of childhood, was enjoying the fun of, because, you know, you're outside getting dirty, and white people racistly associate that with natives, I think. It's why you have Peter Pan and uh, uh, even even British people. And to this day in French, in French, right, the word for a uh, the word for a street urchin is apache, like Apache. Oh, really? Yeah, they you, you know that's just a way we fetishize native people. Anyway, it ends with ten helioscopic, periscopic, pharmaceutical tubes. So there's a sense that we're getting the double speak of um, turbo encabulators, right. even though this is 1870. And this early version goes on to and has 11 and 12, 11 flat-bottom flyboats floating from Madagascar to Mount Prunello, 12 European dancing masters sent to Egypt to teach the Egyptian mummies to dance and sing. So what's the significance of 12? Because there's also 12 days of Christmas. Yeah. Why are there 12 days of Christmas, Ken? Uh, well, that's that's the Christian festival of Advent between Christmas and Epiphany. But why 12 days? Am I getting that right? I think that's right. Advent? It just yeah, happens sure. to be the count between December 25th and January 6th. There were two feast days. Oh, I see. I think... Maybe maybe I'm wrong, and maybe the reason why Epiphany is Epiphany is because that's 12 days after Christmas. But I think, I mean, 12, groups of 12 appear in every culture. It divides by 2, 3, 4, and 6, as we know, since we were teaching your daughter fractions right. an hour ago. <clears throat> uh, magic people have 12 toes and 12 fingers. Yes, that's uh, why they have powers. Um but in the dawn of radio, these kind of these f- things, which were fun memory parlor games and tongue twisters, they already had two things. They got repurposed uh, as tests of articulation and diction. Oh, for uh, announcers. Yes, there's a new job now. I mean, before then, the only job that really required talking to people was, was what preacher and politician, and you would be speaking to f- fifty people. Right. Which, well, in, in that case. It mattered whether or not you were loud. Right. You could have you could have the worst speech impediment. You could probably mispronounce things. Um, Whew, thank goodness. But not on... Yeah. <laughs> this was the golden age for you. <laughs> but on NBC radio, you know, or, you know, whatever, on some New York radio station, they would really want the cream of the crop. They would want people to say things right. They would want people to speak at the right speed with the right 
educated sounding accent. And this was the this was the era of the mid Atlantic accent or the or received pronunciation. So there was thought to be a radio. I feel like radio is what action. births it, right? Yeah, like right. W- suddenly you can hear someone talking who is an authority, not just to your church congregation or your classroom, but to your city or state or country. Right. And then by definition, suddenly now there's a right way to talk. Maybe the way Queen Victoria talked was right, but nobody could hear it. Or none of, you know, very right. few of her subjects. Mr. and Mrs. North America and all the ships at sea. So why did they choose this voice? <laughs> <laughs> News flash. Um, so to test people for these jobs, uh, they would give them a, a paragraph or a sentence to say, and they would have little traps of uh, tongue twistery English, you know, words that sound the same. They would have words that you are easily mispronounced. Um, the guy who called Phillips Carlin, who called the uh, 1920s World Series, um, reported that at his station, the uh, the announcers had to say Penelope Chumley, which is spelled Chalmondley. It's a it's a trap. You have to know it's Chumley. Raised her azure eyes from the crabbed scenario. She meandered among the congeries of her memoirs. There was the kinetic Algernon, a choleric artificer of icons and triptychs who wanted to write a trilogy. For years, she had stifled her risibilities with dour moods. His asthma caused her to sow like the zephyrs among the tamarack. So it's meaningless. Right. But infuriating. Yes. Yeah. And but you but maybe one in a hundred people will will get through all the traps. Like I'm sure I said sow or something wrong. Right. Um and they want to weed out people who say Soviet and Tio and uh, Tijuana. Right. To their everlasting discredit. And sometimes they're tongue twisters. Like NBC wants people to say the seething sea ceased to see. Then thus suffices thus. I almost made it. <laughs> and I'm not good at this kind of I have a lazy tongue. You are a as a musician, you have a trained voice. Uh. And uh you know, I, I feel like you would fly through one of these announcers' tests unless they wanted you to say Soviet. I mean, w- one of the things that um, I made a point of when I was young was to be was to articulate or be able to articulate and not get a heavy tongue and not just sort of give that. That's how my kids talk. I really try to, and this and this often works against me in that, like a lot of of people that learned words by reading. Yeah. I will put an extra beat, an extra syllable. Right? I'll, I'll articulate uh, letters that actually aren't um, pronounced. Um, but like in my own name, there are members of my family that, that pronounce our last name Roderick. And I am a real stickler for the fact that it's a three-syllable last name, Roderick. And I do that a lot. Uh, but it's it's it, it was something I practiced when I was young. Do you do it as a kind of hypercorrection? Will you ever put the put the new sounds where they should not be? No, besides I try, Tijuana, I try I try not to. But like Tijuana, I think of I think that extra a is suggested by the by the pronunciation the of a hua, the, the j right. Yeah, There's yeah. a hua that leads the into stretches it. Stretches out, yeah. And to not to just go Tijuana is you're missing a beat, like a like a rhythm. There is nothing like podcasting to teach you that you don't know how to say. A huge chunk of the words you know. Yeah, but that. But I think it's the rhythmic nature of language that that has always intrigued me, and I try to speak with a kind of rhythmic bounce. And part of that is to why miss an opportunity to articulate consonants that are there? Why would you slur them? Why would you say consonants? And if you could say consonants, I mean, it's easy to make fun of actors 
doing their little Moses supposes his toes are roses warmups to, to lighten their tongues or whatever. But it's a real thing. I yeah. mean, that, that really does make the the dialogue come alive in a way that it doesn't when I kind of when I talk with my kind of late. If I don't think about it, I don't. Um, I have a little gap between my front teeth because I don't. I didn't wear my retainer long enough. Kids, uh-huh. take note. And <laughs> as a result, if I'm not really trying, like I get really kind of lazy, sibilant s's, sibilant s's. Yeah. You know. And I'll say, everybody. Everybody's going to be over here. But I feel like that's more of a, that's a regional accent. That's everybody. Your, your, that's you just being a common man. I remember uh, uh, this really stuck out to me in talking to people in Berlin about Austrians. Like, ger- like Prussians. Oh, do they have the strict? Yeah, they, they just, German? they're so infuriated by Austrians and, and, and um, Bavarians because in their impression, the, they just, they, they slur. German until it's unintelligible or just, you know, they're just like such a lazy kind of their diction is so soft and compared to like a Northern German and, and they're, and you know, and it ties in with the, the soft Bavarian bodies that they're, <laughs> that the, the angular Prussians are probably laughing at. Right? But I don't know what cocktail party I was at in Germany at one point where I, I was just, I was enthralled by this like passionate co- argument between a half a dozen people, half a dozen Germans about the the various dialects in Germany and, and mostly accent, you yeah. know, like, like pronunciation. Uh, I just, I, I came away from it because it made me think about, about my own, the way I speak in the regionalisms in America in these other terms, in these sort of Germanic but we do Terms. the same thing, like the, sure. the softer, the, the the more musical twang of a certain kind of music or a certain part of the country we associate with a lack of education, unfairly. Well, except for the very yes, most exactly. gentle sort of <laughs> patrician <laughs> southern accent where it's just like a sweet burbling brook. You got to be a, a Tennessee Williams <laughs> character. Uh, this happens. That happens in Spain as well, but with kind of a racist overlay huh. because some of the... Um, the most, I don't want to say laziest, but the some of the least articulated Spanish comes from the Caribbean. Like the one that has the most swallowed sounds and syllables, that would be maybe Cuban or Dominican, Dominican Spanish. Yeah. So if you're in Spain, uh, it's just a way to kind of roll your eyes at the lazy immigrant population. They're so lazy, they can't even, you know, say their R's and S's right. Right. Um, so it very quickly takes on a, a moral component, which it probably does not have. Uh, but, uh, there's so, there's so the Spanish language is so fraught with that stuff, even within Spain, you know, there's, what is it? There's 15 different Spanishes just in, just in Spain and they all have political and social overtones. One thing I've noticed recently is that just getting my new, maybe I've said this before, but getting my news mostly, almost entirely from the internet. I don't know how to pronounce any newly famous person's name. Oh, right. I didn't know how to say, is it Fauci? The, the CDC guy, the I think so. To me, he is F A U C I because I do not watch cable news, and I'm sure everyone in America knows. There's it's, not two it's, C's. It's I think there's one C. So everybody in America knows this guy as a as a sound Fauci, and I, to me, he's a, he's a series of symbols. He's right. he's a series of glyphs, and it, it, it never even occurs to me that I don't know how to say it until I have to say it to someone, and then I'm like, Doctor. That's 100% true. I do not know whether Elon Musk is married to a woman named Grimes or Grimaze. <laughs> is or it Grimace from McDonaldland? Grimace. Like all do, you, I, do you know how to say their kid's name? Oh. Uh, it's, um, like, it's like a modern. It's the, it's the Pythagorean theorem, right? It, I think it's pronounced. 
And that's what they named their kid. Hmm. Uh, here's one more uh, announcer's test. This is actually Mike Nichols, who later became one of the great um, comedians and then stage directors and then film directors of the century. Oh, but of Nichols and May. Of Nichols and May fame. He directed uh, Graduate and right. Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. I really like his Catch-22, although I think a lot of people don't. I really it's, don't it's, like that werewolf movie with Jack Nicholson. It's an unusual movie, that Catch-22. I like it. It's got World War II, but also Art Garfunkel. Those are my two interests yeah. combining. Oh, and Bob Newhart. It's a hell of a catch, <laughs> that Catch-22. <laughs> That's what they say. Uh, and so when he, he started out in radio, like all these people of that generation, and he wrote the one that Chicago WFMT used for many years, which is really mean because it's a lot of foreign names. That's what radio people have a book of. Like if you work for public radio, you've got a hardcover book on your shelf that uh, has Helps you pronounce. phonetic pronunciations of these things. And his test begins, it's very long. The WFMT announcer's lot is not a happy one. In addition to uttering the sibilant, mellifluous cadences of such cacophonous sounds as Hans Schmidt Isserstedt, Karl Schurecht, Nicanor Zabaleta, Hans Knoppertsbuch, and the Hammerklavier Sonata, he must thread his way thread his vocal way through the complications of, and then there's like French and Dutch ones. Go L ahead. L'Orchestre de la Suisse Romande, <laughs> the Concertgebouw Orchestra of Amsterdam, the Leitzbig Gewand House Orchestra, and other complicated nomenclature. So they wanted people that could do the foreign right. names too. If you're going to be, maybe this was a classical music station. Uh, and uh, there was one particular one that was, uh, that was recorded by a radio announcer named Del Moore. He later became a TV uh, actor. He played the husband on Life with Elizabeth, an early sitcom, on which Elizabeth, his wife, was played, his dotty wife was played by none other than Betty White. This Whoa. is like the early, like mid, early to mid 50s. Del Moore died in 1970. <laughs> Betty White, his TV <laughs> wife, is uh, still going strong. Um, and, you know, later in life after that, he was, a, you know, he had an LA children's show and he's most famous for his friendship with Jerry Lewis because Jerry put him in. Cinderfella, and he plays the dean of the university and nutty professor. So you've probably seen the guy. But Delmore was Jerry Lewis's friend back to the, you know, their very early beginnings of show business, like late 40s, early 50s. And he told Jerry about the, the test that Radio Central used for announcers in New York in 1941. And it was an adaptation of this 19th century parlor game that starts with poultry and moves into oysters, porpoises, tweezers, Macedonians, brass monkeys. Um, it's very similar to that. And at some point, somebody had codified and adapted that so that instead of pneumatic tubes, there's denizens of the deep. But at this point, he gets kind of frozen because Jerry loves it and starts to put it in his stage act because it's kind of a lazy, easy way to kill time. He's a guy who likes funny voices and funny sounds anyway. And he calls it the announcer's test. Even though it's real, even though there's hundreds of these tests, and there's just one. This is just one that a friend told him about. Right, but this becomes the it's, in his test. bit. It's the announcer's test, and people will say, "Do the announcer's test." So he does it in his stage act, and he does it in his telethons. So well into the '90s, if you saw Jerry Lewis on stage, he was probably doing this thing, and that's how it gets fixed in the public consciousness. And from there, it spreads into all the places I thought it would have come from, scout camps and kids yelling on field trip buses and playgrounds. And it goes back to, to party games even. You know, it becomes a drama club warm-up. Like today, kind of nerdy drama kids will sit and recite eight brass monkeys from the ancient sacred crypts of Egypt just because, you know, you got to say something. Right. And that one kind of has a tongue twister quality. It spreads out in show business. Danny Kaye starts doing it. 
And uh, an interesting thing happens when it crosses into the counterculture. In the 1960s, uh, the Turtles, the band The Turtles, have broken up. Are you familiar with? Of course. The work of the I'm not, but Happy Together yeah. and Eleanor. I guess I can think of a couple Turtles singles. They had broken up, and their Max, Mark Volman and Howard Kalin, uh, who were kind of the center of the group, were no longer allowed to use the name The Turtles anymore by their record company. So they started to record as Flo and Eddie. Sure. And they're kind of a psychedelic thing now. I think Flo is short for phosphorescent leech or something like they they all have kind of these wavy gravy type names and as Flo and Eddie they quickly fall in with uh, Frank Zappa's circle they join the mothers of invention and as part of their stage act especially when they're touring touring with Zappa when Zappa is tuning his guitars or whatever sometimes Flo and Eddie will get on stage and they will do a, a series of bits they used to do in their live act called the Sanzini Brothers uh-huh. where they kind of pretend to be a troupe of Ed Sullivan's show-style European entertainers who who do a series of amazing tricks. And I think, you can't really tell on record, but I think people who saw the shows in person say there is no trick. They'll just announce they're going to do the pyramid trick, and there'll be a lot of build-up and funny voices, and then maybe they'll all just do a pyramid, a triangle with their hands. Uh-huh. Or they'll say they're going to do the, they say they're going to do the sodomy trick, and the you know that the crowd will all you know giggle and titter, and then there's after a big buildup, nothing happens. They they take a drumstick from the drummer and you know and brandish it suggestively or something. Anyway, one of these bits they do. Entertainment well, used to be so easy. Well, Zappa said, yeah. well, what do you do? You, you tune at length. <laughs> I do. What's your equivalent? You I just, do. You just tell stories about what you did on the way to the venue. Yeah, tw- 20 minutes of tuning while I'm telling a story about my walk, right? Yeah, you don't need any of these old radio bits. You don't need Wad Adam Chew. I, sh- I should say. Because you give new material to the people every time. <laughs> I should say that Flo and Eddie, uh, although they are these uh, these goofballs within the Zappa circus, they sang backing vocals on Hungry Heart. Yes, and Bang a Gong. And Bang a Gong. Like you have heard, because they're, I guess they're, you know, the, the tight harmonies on the Turtle songs yeah, show that they, they're good musicians. Yes, that's yeah. why I'm sure that's why they were there. Yeah, interesting. They weren't just deployed as a novelty act, but as the Sanzini brothers, they certainly were. And one of these tracks they would do, while Zap is endlessly tuning, can, can you do some tuning noises right there while sure. we, while, while hey, we. Fine. My, uh, Don't you have only you have what four guitar five guitars over there? Yeah. Yeah. Little, little tuning happening here. So we'll pretend that Zap is tuning, and meanwhile these guys, Flo and Eddie, will just will take the mic and try to keep the crowd entertained by doing one head, one head, two ducks, one head, two ducks, three squawking geese. So now it becomes a thing that young people think is kind of a a cool psychedelic. Uh, you know, because it's got all these weird nonsense verses. You know, it's the same way that that culture embraced Lewis Carroll and and Edward Lear. I should have been doing this. I should have been doing this with my electric here. There we go. Yeah, this is what this is what Zappa would have sounded like. Four limerick oysters. Well, five corpulent porpoises. <laughs> Wait, was that plugged in? Uh, yeah. Oh, I, I was like, I thought you just picked up some unplugged guitar. I was like, how is he doing that? This is added value. But your record company won't let you record as the Long Winters. So no, that's right. That's I'm, why we're called John and Eddie. Moe Mo and Curly. <laughs> and one of the, so one of these bits they did would be the, uh, the t- they would call it the Tibetan memory trick. 
And so if you're born after a, before a certain period, you think of this as the announcer's test because you saw Jerry Lewis and Danny Kaye and all these old style entertainers do it. It's kind of a, a square Victor Borga type thing. Right. But Tibetan memory trick makes it sound, you know, like, uh, like something really Eastern it's and mystical. Eastern and mysterious now. And, and, you know, and once you hear the words, it's kind of silly. I mean, I guess maybe Tibetan lamas could chant about oysters and porpoises, but they're probably not chanting about tweezers and roller skates. Uh, in any, you know, in any incarnation of Lamaist Buddhism that I'm aware of. Well, except, you know, the Lama sees all, transcends this right. earthly plane. Like the tweezers have as much to do with the, the, the wheel of life as, uh, That's right. as, as any, the porpoise, as a, porpoise, sure. as, as a lowly porpoise. Anyway, in our, in our day, thanks to all these influencers, Jerry Lewis down to Zappa, um, all the great influencers, <laughs> Grimes. The, I basically live my life according to the teachings of Danny Kay, Frank Zappa, and Grimes. Uh, the this eighteen um, seventies little goofy square parlor game has returned to children's books. Like now, any book of you know fun rainy day activities will have this announcer's test or Tibetan memory trick, usually called the Tibetan memory trick now because it's a more interesting name. Same reason I used it for this podcast. Mm -hmm. I didn't want our numbers to dip when we recorded the show called the announcer's (laughs) test. Oh, good. We can skip that one. Tibetan memory trick, which is just a, it's, it's, it's totally, it's, it's fake. There's no, nothing nothing mystical about it. And it's really not even a memory trick. It, you know, I guess it originated through parlor games that were memory tests, but since then it's been through many other incarnations, you know, song, tongue twister, uh, uh, employment test, uh, drama club, warm up, um, stage act. It's been through many other things and now it's, it's kind of come full circle as a nominal memory trick, but I don't know if, uh, you had never heard it when I asked you about it. So, so, and I don't know if anybody younger than me is likely to know about it. Like, is this the, the codified version? Is it now, is it standardized? It's pretty well standardized because this is what Jerry Lewis did on stage. Like, I think um, the version I heard from my dad as a kid had Revlon tweezers instead of Don Alverso's ones. And I think the, oh, I think there's a different adjective somewhere. I don't think the the denizens of the deep stalked around the corner of the quo of the key of the quivery. And it's key with a Q, by the way. They're trying to trip up the announcer right. to see if he'll say key correctly. Um, but I think pretty much it's pretty well standardized, but maybe just in time for it to die. Like, I don't know. I'm kind of interested to hear if anybody in our era under 30 has ever heard this before, if it was part of their their outdoors tradition as a youth or it's their schoolyards. really weird to me that I haven't heard of it. I mean, I... It is kind of your brand. I watched an awful lot of telethons and, <laughs> you know, I have all of Victor Borges' records. <laughs> so it's just strange, like, where... And also, I'm not, you know, I'm not, like, immune to Zappa either. How this would have would have passed me completely by because because it, it, it's attention grabbing. I I'm sure that it, had I heard it, I, it would have stuck or at least yeah, I would have. Even though the elements it. are semi arbitrary, like I'm sure, but because the way they repeat cumulatively, it does stick them in your head. Yeah, and they, and they are chosen, you know, corpulent purposes. They are chosen to be fun to say. Um, I mean, it's but it's I kind of wonder more intelligible than Jabberwocky and. You know, I've got enough of that floating around. I think, I mean, maybe that's the one great service that the omnibus will perform is to make sure that even if this is forgotten in the early 21st century, that the 31st century is all about 
not just turbo and cabulators and pre and incusal, but but corpulent porpoises and uh, donal versus tweezers. We may be speaking to sentient limerick oysters as uh, as we speak. And that concludes the Tibetan memory trick. Entry. 1306.nu0774 Certificate number 34596 in the omnibus. Limerick Oysters, in the unlikely event that social media exists in your era, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram are archived at at Omnibus Project. Do not leave your oyster beds. Leave leave this well enough alone. Yeah. Stay, stay in your beds and continue filtering... Uh, impurities. Stay away from walruses and carpenters and social media platforms. Uh, if you would like to join Ken in going back in his timeline and appreciating his old tweets, <laughs> you can find them at Ken Jennings. Uh, my old tweets are at John Roderick. Mine are in the Smithsonian. John's are at John Roderick. When did your When did you join Twitter? 2011. Yeah. So we've we been wow. there a long time. Holy, that's almost it. That's a full decade. I know. Isn't that crazy? That's not good. It's really insane. I just had a real spiritual awakening it's kind of awful that's that's longer than elementary school that's longer than yep oh, let's see what, what, what's your what was your sign-in date you can see that does I it say that yeah i think it's on your profile joined in no joined in something it says here on mine joined november 2008 <sighs> i've been there 12 years you can graduate 12 years. You're done. I should. You can take I your should. diploma and walk away and leave it on your microwave for, for years. The thing is, I've said I'm done with Twitter so many times that every time I tweet now, some wag always like tweets me back and says, I thought you were done with Twitter. It is a trope on Twitter that people will, I'm leaving Twitter now, and then seven seconds later, they'll come back on and be like, all right, you know, that was good. Yeah. That's the bit. Um, you can go to my Instagram account, which is a very friendly and uh, life-affirming place, at John Roderick. You can email us at theomnibusproject at gmail.com. You can go socialize with other Futurelings at uh, the Futurelings Facebook page and the Futurelings Reddit page, the Futurelings Discord, the Futurelings Kick. Their physical campfire where they sit around and do fun chants based on our episodes. One sliced bread, two milli vanillis, three Three. limerick noids. Uh, you can mail us actual things. Ken brought a bunch of things today. and uh, Oh, look. Uh, uh, Ralphie, if I'm reading that right, or possibly the singer Raffi. R- Ralphie from The Sopranos? No, Ralphie did, from A did, Christmas Story. Oh, Ralphie. He has sent us a bit of Antarctic currency. No, there's no such thing. It is not. But it's, wait, backed by the U.S. dollar, but essentially worthless. But it's very beautiful. Oh, that is beautiful. It has the oh. security strips that European currencies oh, have that we can't afford here. And it's got uh, penguins in two different beautifully oh, shaded dyes. Lovely. And it's made out of that weird plasticky stuff that Canadian money is now made out of. Yeah. It says it's backed by the dollar. But what does that mean? Some private company is um, will exchange these one-to-one? I don't know. I mean, they're, they are quite beautiful, but there's nothing to buy in Antarctica. That's not true. There are gift shops. Really? Yeah. If you go, to, it's, it's a real source of income for a lot of these um, coastal research stations is that they will have... A gift shop, and so when the when the Antarctic cruises drop people off, they will buy T-shirts and hats and postcards to send home, postmarked Antarctica. Oh, of course, they got a real racket going there. And uh, and Ralphie sent it with a, I think he must have had extra Christmas cards this year because it's got it's a 
greeting card with, with a Shutterfly photo of delicious-looking cookies. Those are delicious. Um, or delicious-looking. Thank you, Ralphie. That's a beautiful Antarctic dollar. I'm going to put that somewhere, pl- place of pride. And you thoughtfully sent two. Please send yeah. two of whatever you send people, because otherwise John and I just fight like uh, like seven-year-old sisters. What's funny is that when people only send one of a thing, it's generally, between us at least, pretty easy to decide who gets it. Because like, they can tell. Like, oh, these are weird-smelling books. I'll give these to John. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, I get the weird-smelling paperbacks. You get the you get the old uh, clothing. Yeah, old weird. There's there's you get the hats with ear flaps. We each get weird things, and every once in a while, there's a thing that we both want. And usually, Ken sort of is uh, he ends up seeding it to me, it not because he doesn't want it, but because he doesn't want to carry it. The other, I think I stole your two dollar bill from the other day. Do you remember somebody sent us two dollar bills? Yes. I just looked at my wallet, and I have it. Way too many $2 bills, which means I probably stole yours. Why would you have stolen my $2? I don't know. How many $2 bills are in your wallet? I have like four $2 bills in my wallet. Well, now that's all crinkly. When it when it showed up here, it was it was crisp. Do you still... Well, nah, that's fine. Do, maybe it's... Did you take it? Do you have one? I have no idea. I don't have a $2 bill. No. I think I stole your $2 bill. Uh, Although, you know, I have a nine-year-old girl running around here. If you leave yeah, a $2 bill... she has around, a $2 bill, well, maybe she'll steal this fun money with penguins on it. Did you do the full oh, thing? Oh, uh, so you can mail us these wonderful things, like these Antarctic dollars or $2 bills, to P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. I like how your examples are both money. $20 bills. Should send us. You can send us 50s. envelopes. One, one uh, founding father I admire is Benjamin Franklin, if you could right. find money with him on it. That's right. Send us some Benjamins. We love uh, Ulysses S. Grant. Uh, Euros. I will take any euro denomination, including the 500 and 1,000 euro bills. I will as well, but only if they're Maltese. Oh. Wait, is Malta in the EU? Malta? Maybe? It's got to be in the EU. Okay, please send me all your Maltese euros. Hmm. Uh, Also, if you like the show and do not want to send cash through the mail from Malta or Antarctica... Uh, you can d- support us directly at patreon.com slash omnibus project. And thank you if you do. Listeners, from our vantage point here in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survive. It's not clear whether it will fade gradually, like the memory of Jerry Lewis telethons, or whether it will die immediately, like Jerry Lewis. We hope and pray that the catastrophe for may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But if Providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. Omnibus.